Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital in a week where we're not quite sure whether a global pandemic or Russian interference constitutes a greater threat to the country. Of course, only time will tell on that one. My name is Scott Challoner, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on the programme by James Wilkins as I look to engage with a new perspective on leadership. James is the Group Operations Director and IT Director at the Delivery Group, the largest e-commerce, postal and logistics business in the UK. We'll also be joined later on in the programme by former Labour MP and Secretary of State Lord David Blunkett. But first and foremost, James, welcome to the show and very um, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. Thanks for the invite to join the show. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us, James. Um, The reason why we're here, of course, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside for a moment and considering that in just a little bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What is the role of a leader in your eyes? Um, It's twofold, really. Um, Leadership uh, in my business is the art of motivating uh, our, our people uh, into achieving a common goal. So it means directing my workers and colleagues with an overarching strategy to meet the company's needs, which is uh, very important when we're in a situation like we are at the moment with the global pandemic that faces us. And with regard to the global pandemic situation, of course, even the most experienced business leaders have really been put to the test during this time as they've tried to chart a course through this um, real difficult situation we find ourselves in. Just how difficult has it been for the likes of yourselves? Uh, It has been difficult because we run a national network, a national sortation network. We have 160 vehicles on the road nationwide. At the start of the pandemic, we were employing 560 staff across five depots. And um, what we needed to do is right-size our business to deal with the downturn in certain areas of the business and the upturn and the challenges and the opportunities that presented themselves to us through the pandemic. I think you're absolutely right there, because even though it has been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, there were, there are inevitably going to be opportunities as a result of this. And it's about sort of preparing oneself for the recovery, as it were, and just being ready to seize upon that as and when they come along. Uh, and that's right. We, we saw uh, a downturn in uh, one of our main business streams, but we saw a uh, very large upturn in our e-commerce uh, deliveries and sortation and also it presented an opportunity for us to go into opening markets and we successfully launched a cool chain operation uh, for the government on COVID test kits. Mm. So that's certainly something positive that's come as a result of this uh, pandemic situation for sure and is there anything that you would say the experience of managing your way through this crisis thus far has actually taught you as a business leader that maybe you didn't necessarily know you had the skills to deal with before? I think what we've done uh, as a management team and what we've been uh, led to do is forensically analyze the business on a daily basis to understand our customer demands to right-size our business and one to 
um, put the correct amount of staff and the correct amount of resource throughout the business to deliver our quality of service. Um, so it's been challenging. It's been challenging because we've had to manipulate our work patterns internally. We've asked our staff to be flexible and uh, all testament to the staff through good leadership, through good MI and good data that can understand what's happening within our business on a daily, weekly and monthly basis. I suppose sort of providing reassurance for staff members is incredibly important because there is the whole mental health and well-being side of things to consider, not just, of course, with all of the uncertainty and all of the uh, the worry, um, but also the fact that there are new sort of working procedures in place. There's um, sort of that social isolation for those working from home. So that must also have been a challenge for you, but it seems you've got to grips with that side of things quite well. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the majority of our staff uh, already had laptops, to, and we use uh, multiple um, devices and systems to be able to communicate. So we use uh, a Siemens circuit system. We've uh, got very old fay with Teams as the uh, pandemic has uh, developed, and the home working ethic is providing us with. Uh, good opportunities. So we're doing a lot of face-to-face meetings. Oh, sorry, what should have been face-to-face meetings now virtually. Uh, We are seeing higher productivity with uh, the team environment working from home because we are taking out anything up to two, three hours a day of traveling time for some of our uh, key employees. So we've had a real focus on our productivity and actually over the covid uh, time, our productivity has increased, which is a testament to the, the, the staff that we employ. And if we sort of fast forward maybe two or three years when hopefully we're in a world where COVID-19 is no longer an issue, do you see there being a place for the office environment back working in vogue or do you think there'll be more and more people working remotely on a personal basis? Uh, I think getting the team together, either virtually or in uh, face-to-face is vitally important for any business. But what we've found is that we're communicating far more now that we have got uh, remote office workers. It's far easier, rather than being in a two-hour meeting, to have snapshots in five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour with your colleagues and get some uh, really quick and decisive decisions uh, over the remote working platform. Mm. And do you think that the experience of sort of working through a crisis like this has galvanized you and also the staff as well? Do you think it's been ultimately a character building um, sort of means for them? Absolutely, because what we've found is that uh, certain people that were unfortunately furloughed at the start of this as we right-sized our business uh, the, the, the remaining people that have been in either the office environment or been working with us um, uh, day-to-day, side-by-side, have actually presented themselves with far uh, greater skill sets that weren't visible when they were in the office environment. So we've had people move within the organization to different roles and excelled in those roles because that it's been a showcase for the skill sets of our staff and our colleagues that we just didn't 
understand before the uh, pandemic started. So, yes, it's been very, very good for us. And, of course, it's, it's been a positive period um, in the sense that you've dealt with it quite well and excelled during this time. But when you were sort of at the beginning of this sort of lockdown period and staring down the barrel at what looked to be a huge issue, how did you sort of mentally steel yourself to sort of go about dealing with it the way that you have? Um, a lot of it comes down to uh, your preparation, having a clear uh, leadership approach to it and actually speaking to all your suppliers to understand what their needs are because they're also in a changing marketplace. Um, is there something that uh, we can do with our suppliers? And we and we did. We created uh, a forum of our, our suppliers and our, some of our largest suppliers uh, we worked with them. We overcame their problems to deliver the best service that we could uh, throughout this uh, uh, pandemic. We, we Unfortunately, we did need to furlough some staff at the start of it. Um, but uh, the opportunities that have presented themselves through COVID means that the majority of our staff have, have come back um, and are working and uh, delivering better results than we uh, expected post, uh, pre, sorry, pre-COVID and uh, the post-pandemic as we find ourselves in now. And of course, you've been in business for quite some time uh, now, uh, James. Um, you, of course, were in a director's role with Littlewoods before joining um, the delivery group back in 2006, I think I'm right in saying. And you've sort yeah. of gone from strength to strength since then. But if you could actually go back maybe sort of 10, 15 years and speak to the younger version of yourself, with that experience yeah. that you have now, is there anything that you would tell the younger you to do differently? Yeah, I think so. I think... Uh... Uh, you, you've got to take the opportunities, you've got to innovate, but you've got to have fundamental um, uh, decisions made on a daily basis. You you have got to monitor your, your people, uh, you've got to be a good leader, and you've got to give them the information as in, in the most timely manner that you can do, because they make their own decisions from that. And if they feel empowered and if they feel that they're part of the business and can see um, uh, certain streams declining within the business but other streams increasing within the business, they will work with you. The one thing that you can't do within a leadership role is not uh, disseminate the information to your staff and to your uh, reports. The information in all of this has been key and keeping our employees and colleagues abreast of one the company situation but also the situation with regard to uh, our customers if our customers are posting or they're not posting uh, the levels of work that will be coming into the organization so KPIs metrics and volume going through the business has had an absolute uh, magnifying glass on it to deliver um, the best results that we can for our end customers. And having reflected on the past now, James, it only serves that we talk about the future, of course, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today. Um, we are going to have to adjust to a new normal. That's very clear. But over the next 12 to 18 months, as we get to grips with those challenges, what is next for you in the delivery group and what do you hope to achieve? Uh, I think key to our success, as it has been for the last, 
last uh, 13 years has been innovation. So uh, the pandemic has provided us opportunities to be able to um, adapt our systems. We have an infrastructure that can deliver products around the country and internationally. And what we've done is leveraged our assets and our infrastructure to um, spearhead ourselves into new marketplaces um, and be able to leverage our IT internally to create uh, management dashboards for our customers and give them all the information and the rich information that we um, gather on a daily basis to help them run their business and their business decisions more smoothly uh, through this crisis. So I think one thing that we will be um, mentoring on in the uh, next few years is how can we leverage our data, our intelligence, and provide that to our customers to better uh, help them deliver the services that they require. Mm-hmm. Sounds like there's plenty of uh, work to do uh, once we start moving into the uh, the next few months and plenty, of course, to uh, be cracking on with, James. Hopefully there'll be some really positive news to share um, in those endeavours in the coming months. And, you know, I actually think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on the show in future just to see how things are getting on at that point. I would welcome that. And, of course, uh, that would be a pleasure. Yeah, and it would be good um, to tell you what the delivery group has done to innovate through this uh, pandemic and uh, actually give you a list of our new services mm. and uh, be able to show you that uh, business in the UK will survive and it will innovate as uh, we come out of this pandemic. Exactly. Let's certainly hope that there'll be some positive news uh, to share in the coming months, James. Certainly seems that it will be the case. Um, But there are, of course, still a great many variables um, in the way the pandemic might go as well. And we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Um, I have to say, James, it's also been a real pleasure for myself having you join us on the show today. And until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Okay, I really appreciate those comments, Scott. And thank you very much. I was speaking today to James Wilkins, Group Operations Director and IT Director at The Delivery Group, and also a message for those tuning in and listening today. Please do continue to be sensible with lockdown restrictions. Look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. He became one of the most renowned politicians of his generation during his political career, did Lord Blunkett, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. 
obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well.
How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of, 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.